From the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia, this is Religion for Life. My name is John Sheck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. The website for this program is religionforlife.com. Today we're going to broach the topic of religion and politics, and I know religion and politics just doesn't generally go well. It's like bathing an angry cat. This is a YouTube clip from Scott Beach that kind of gives the flavor. Religion and politics often make some people lose all perspective and give way to ranting and raving and carrying on like emotional children. They either refuse to discuss it with reason or else they prefer argumentum and hominem, which is a hell of a way to conduct a discussion. Well, anyhow, not long ago, I was talking about the elections and how the campaigns were ignoring the issues and sticking instead to invective and personal crap that had nothing to do with the substantive problems of running a government, which is all true, as you know, if you followed the speeches and so-called debates of the candidates. Anyhow, one of the guys I was talking with said not a word in the whole conversation except at the end when he suddenly chuckled and said we were all full of shit and why didn't we go live in Russia or China if that was the way we all hated the United States of America. Next thing you know, the whole blooming discussion was more like a brawl and the epithets flew thick and fast and the noise was incredible. Someone said son of a bitch and I think he said bastard. I couldn't be sure. It was also confusing. Well, anyhow, I was attempting to get it all back on a rational level. I tried, for example, to talk to the one who had started it all and I asked him just what did he mean we were all full of shit? Was he making a statement of fact as he knew it and where was his documentation to back up his claim? I think I think Socrates would have been proud of the way I refuted his argument, that is, I tried to refute it, but all he could offer by way of rebuttal was more of the same about how we were all full of shit, but he wouldn't say why, he just kept on repeating it, that and the part about Russia and China and communist dupes, and I'll have to confess that I got a bit angry and told him to stuff his ideas up his, which you don't have to tell me is hardly a way to convince anyone in an argument, then he got salty and threatened to give me a punch in the mouth if I didn't shut up, and I really got hot, and the others did too, and we all beat the shit out of Mr. Conservative, and after all, he had only himself to be blamed. This is still a free country, and anyone telling a fellow like me, brother, you're full of shit, better be good and ready to answer politely when asked if he'd care to say why. Scott Beach with an example of how religion and public life go together, and that's not very well. We're going to try to do better than that today. How do we engage the public square respectfully, passionately, coherently, reasonably? That's the topic for today. My guest is Robert Cornwall. Uh, Robert Cornwall is a Disciples of Christ pastor, church historian, and author. He currently serves as pastor of Central Woodward Christian Church, uh, the Disciples of Christ denomination, in Troy, Michigan. He's the author of several books as well as numerous articles and book reviews. These books include Ultimate Allegiance, The Subversive Nature of the Lord's Prayer, Ephesians, a Participatory Study Guide, and Faith in the Public Square, released in 2012. He's also editing a new series of books for the Academy of Parish Clergy entitled Conversations in Ministry. Dr. Cornwall has a Ph.D. in Historical Theology from Fuller Theological Seminary, and he's with me today on Religion for Life to discuss his latest book, Faith in the Public Square. This book is a collection of essays that he wrote for the newspaper when he was serving a church in Lompoc, California. He was a weekly op-ed contributor to the Lompoc Record. The editor of the newspaper gave Robert a weekly column to address social and political issues from the perspective of a person of faith. He is a blogger. He blogs at uh, uh, Ponderings on a Faith Journey is the title of his blog, and you can find that at bobcornwall.com. Welcome, Bob, to Religion for Life. Thanks, John, for having me. 
How did you happen to um, uh, begin writing this column for the newspaper? The way it started was I was pastoring the church in Lompoc, California. There was uh, the local paper had a Friday uh, religion page, and one of the uh, every other Friday there was a, a column by the local uh, evangelical pastor, and I approached the paper about writing a uh, a column for the other two weeks out of the month, and we kind of started working from that. And but the way I wrote and the topics I picked up seemed to fit the the op-ed page on Sundays better than Friday religion page, and so I ended up uh, becoming the regular columnist for the Lumpook Record uh, on Sunday mornings. You mentioned uh, that you wanted to, in your book, that you want to start a conversation. What conversation is not happening that you want to see happen? As I look at the, the conversations or hear listen to the conversations out there, it seems like there are two positions. One is that uh, faith needs to have the dominant uh, voice and, and with the desire to push out any voices that don't agree with that. And the other voice is that religion should be private, and uh, if you know, people of faith should just keep their, their faith to themselves and, and not stick their noses in public life. And as a, as a person of faith, as a follower of Jesus, that doesn't seem to, to work very well for me, because Jesus seems to continually talk about things that are of public nature and throughout the faith. Uh, as I understand my faith, it calls me to a life of, of justice. Um, and that, that's, that's, those are public things, and my faith drives that conversation. And so what I want to do is, is provide and try to do in the columns was to try to provide an opportunity for us to have a, uh, a conversation that was respectful of each other, but also allow for faith voices to, to have their place, uh, but not worry about who's in control of the public square. I'm wondering if faith is in the public square, you can't make an appeal, for example, to the Bible or to supernaturalism or something like that. It has to be based on reason. So why is there a middleman of faith at all? Why can't it just be John Sheck in the public square or Bob Cornwall in the public square? What role does faith have in that dialogue? Well, I, I think it's a question of what forms us as, as people. A large part of who I am is defined by my faith, and so I can't leave that out of the question. But when I frame my responses in the public square, I need to be able to do so in a way that um, allows a person whose faith position is different or who doesn't come to the question from a faith position can feel respected and be able to contribute to the conversation. Sometimes when we do see people in the public square, I often cringe. Um, They say that they've got the Christian position on marriage or immigration or guns. And and I kind of wonder, is there really a Christian position on anything? That's a good question, because there are so many different Christian positions out there. Uh, I don't claim to represent the Christian position. I Mm -hmm. only can speak for myself. I don't even try to speak for my congregation. I'm a disciple of Christ as a denomination, and part of our ethos is one of recognizing the, the freedom of the individual to come to faith and look at the faith, look at Scripture for themselves. Um, we don't have a top-down authority. We don't have creeds. So there is that freedom that my denominational tradition provides, and I think that helps me 
uh, enter the public square with a sense of respect for other uh, possibilities as well. And there are some uh, Christian, of course, traditions that would say that would shy away from the public square altogether. That's quite true. Uh, and it's interesting that evangelicalism has has become much more prominent within the the public square in recent uh, decades. But for for a long time, uh, they uh, sought to remain separate from it. And it was the mainline denominations like yours and my, well, like yours especially, but to some degree mine that were more likely to be present in public, to be more likely to be uh, present on the Hill or in the courts. Uh, but that's less true now. And we're kind of on the sidelines, as some would say. And there's uh, evangelicals have taken a, a, a stronger position within the public square. But that wasn't the norm for them uh, a generation or so ago. That seemed to come up, uh, what, when the early 80s, it seemed to me, because I, I remember growing up in evangelical churches, and they really didn't want to be involved in the public, but that suddenly shifted uh, with, uh, I think, with Jerry Falwell and the moral majority. Well, it was in the late 70s. Uh, I graduated from high school in 1976, and I remember uh, that was my first opportunity to vote, and I was in, the, in those days, I was a Republican, uh, voted first time for Jerry Ford, and most of my friends, and I was going to a... Uh, a very evangelical, conservative, Pentecostal congregation. Most of my friends voted for uh, Jimmy Carter, not because they believed in the principles of the Democratic Party, but because he was a Christian, uh, a pronounced Christian. And Jerry Ford, Paul, uh, Jerry Ford didn't seem to be as uh, out front with his faith. Um, but, it, but four years later, uh, those same friends abandoned Jimmy Carter uh, by the droves because they discovered that he might be a good Baptist, but the way that he practiced and understood his faith was different than theirs. So, yes, I think in the last generation since I graduated from high school uh, in the mid-70s, uh, things have changed dramatically. My guest is Robert Cornwall. He's the author of Faith in the Public Square. Uh, he is a blogger and a Disciples of Christ minister, and he hopes to start a conversation uh, that would be civil and respectful and yet um, responsible and, and more have more depth to it. And I'm thinking about uh, how the Bible, for example, is brought into the public square. Um, you know, people will I, I will hear sometimes they say, well, the Bible says this, and this is the Christian position on, on marriage or, or whatever it is. But um, your use of the Bible uh, is, is far more nuanced than that. Can you describe for me, for example, how you might use uh, Scripture when you're talking about uh, issues of importance? Well, I like the fact that you use the word nuanced. Uh, we... I think one of the problems that we uh, we have when we talk about scripture or Bible in in public is that uh, there's this assumption that it it carries a certain divine authority that can't be questioned, mm -hmm. and that uh, it's uh, in my evangelical more evangelical days, you know, we spoke of inerrancy or even infallibility, and um, so there's a certain deference to that. Uh, what many people, I think fail to acknowledge is that every time we come to Scripture, we bring our lives, our context to the conversation. So when we read Scripture, we're interpreting. Uh, I saw there was a, a person uh, who's, who made the distinction between the, word, the way that some people would say the Bible says and instead talks about the way the Bible reads. 
And when we think of it that way, there is that sense of, of our own interpretation and how that affects. And every one of us interprets scripture differently based on our context. We, do, we interpret it differently today than uh, Christians did um, 100 years ago, 300 years ago, 500 years ago. Um, and so our understandings change, our realities change. And so on topics like gay marriage, they adapt. Uh, just like our, our interpretations of those texts, those Pauline texts that seem to give uh, permission for, for slave owners. Uh, you know, 150 years ago, uh, good, solid Christian preachers would go to the scriptures and say, uh, you know, the Bible says it's okay to have slaves. In fact, it's, it's appropriate to have slaves. Today, very few, I'm sure there are a few, but there are very few who would agree to that. And I think right. we're in the same place, uh, though many will disagree with me, but I think we're in the same place today with gay marriage and things like that. Because our understandings of the realities of our world changes, forcing us to look at Scripture, to read Scripture from with a different set of lenses. And I think that if we can recognize that and affirm that, uh, that reality, then I think it furthers our conversation. And you can also be able to use it as a resource, not necessarily a bully kind of resource, as it often seems to be, but as, as a resource for understanding. For example, in one of your uh, essays on immigration, uh, you, you bring out uh, the idea of welcoming uh, the stranger or, or, the, uh, or the alien into the land from... Uh, from the uh, Hebrew scriptures and say, uh, maybe that might inform us, but rather than just say, here's what the Bible says, it's saying, uh, here, here's a story from our heritage and how might it uh, inform our decision. That's right. And I, that's a good uh, text to, to pick up. Those texts uh, throughout the, uh, the Hebrew scriptures, especially, there's this sense of, of being a sojourner, uh, to be, you're, you're a nomad, you're moving from one land to another, and uh, the importance of welcoming the stranger, because you will be welcomed, uh, even as you welcome others. And uh, as we have this conversation in our own country about uh, immigrants and, and the changes that immigrants bring to our communities, I think inform the conversation in a way that is respectful and helpful and, uh, and moves us forward. You mentioned my other little book, uh, Ultimate Allegiance, which is a little study of the Lord's Prayer. And um, which I think is in some, some ways is a companion to faith in the public square, because it asks us the question, and this is the difficult question, is where do I place my allegiance? Mm -hmm. And in our American culture, too often we place, we think that we're, we're serving God or whatever, but our, our American culture and its values overwhelm our faith perspectives. And so the question then becomes, where is my ultimate allegiance? Because as a person of faith, my allegiance goes beyond, in, in God, my allegiance therefore goes beyond the boundaries and borders of, of my nation, of my state, my community, but to embrace the entirety of God's creation. And so I think if we can begin to see things like that, then we recognize that, that the, the stranger is, 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 a, is a member of the family, in a sense. And so we're welcoming them as we would welcome our family. And the scriptures give us an opportunity to see how that would work. You know, it uh, America 
uh, is is kind of an interesting place. I mean, culturally, uh, the dominant religion is is various forms of Christianity, but also, as you write in your essays, you touch on the aspect that it's kind of a, a civil religion. Some people think of America as a Christian nation, and so it creates all kinds of interesting possibilities in the public square of, of how we even understand um, the Bible or our Christian tradition and public life. There's really, it's really, how, how do you separate those strands out? It's, uh, it becomes increasingly difficult to do that, so. And I think sometimes we, we want to separate them out too much. So people would say, uh, no, we're a secular nation. We're based on secular laws, and religion has played no part. Uh, and others would say, no, we are, all of our laws were rooted in the biblical tradition and, and Christian tradition, therefore, and, and that was the, the, the model. You know, and then on one side, they would say, well, you know, the founders were all deists. And the reality is they weren't all deists, nor were they all uh, good evangelical Christians. There was a mixture of that. Uh, They had different reasons for why they wanted to do so. But now we live in a different age in which there are more voices. Just yesterday, uh, uh, as Congress was being sworn in, we had the first Hindu sworn in as a member of Congress, uh, a a congressional representative from Hawaii. that's a, you know, wasn't all that long ago that that would be uh, unheard of. And so how do we relate to each other and bring our, our faith traditions together to share together, to learn together and be faithful to our traditions, even as we respect one another? And it's not easy. It's a complicated issue. Right. It is a complicated issue, and, and there's so much symbolism involved. For You talk about the swearing in, and, and you had mentioned uh, in one of your essays about when a Muslim was sworn in and he wanted to use the Quran and how there was uh, um, kind of a uh, somewhat of a, an uproar over that. And, and uh, But what's the difference, really? It's just a book, but it's a symbol, um, and the symbol of, of the stuff about Christmas and all of that kind of thing. Well, what do you, I, I kind of wonder if, there is, if there's just kind of a, a reaction to, not for, from some, of not being able to be the dominant cultural force anymore, and so there's almost a, a, a circling of the wagons of feeling persecuted. I think that that is true. I, you know, we are moving out of an era in which, uh, well— the white male Protestant Christian uh, was in control. That world no longer exists, and for many people, that is a that is a threat. There, there's great fear in that. There is this sense of losing control, losing the grip on on society, and seeing things change, and and uh, and worried about what that means, um, rather than it, seeking the ways to adapt to it. Right, and and the symbolism, I've always just, uh, I still marvel at it, you know, worrying about whether the Ten Commandments are in the public square, or, 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 or it's, it's almost the image of the symbol of, of, of religion rather than the substance of it sometimes. Well, I think, that, yeah, I think there's a sense of if the symbols are there, that they somehow protect, I mean, just think in terms of the swearing on the Bible that, or the Quran, or yesterday the Bhagavad Gita for the for this new Hindu representative, uh, there is this assumption that when you put your hand on that book, that it protects what you do, it makes you honor, more honorable by, by signing on to it, by putting your hand on it. Even though Jesus says, uh, you know, don't take oaths, uh, we do so. There's a sense of, it's almost a talisman that, uh, for, for many. You know, I, I think there's the sense that if you put the Ten Commandments up in a classroom, kids will behave better. 
And I think the real challenge for us, and this is why your book is so important and your conversation, is to be able to say, let's not regard this necessarily as a threat or something to be afraid about, afraid of, but rather something to embrace and to learn from, that we can actually be stronger in our diversity. I think so. You know, and I don't think that that means that we give up our faith or we don't hold strongly to it. Mm-hmm. I, I think we can, I can strongly hold to my Christian faith that I'm a follower of Jesus that defines who I am as a person, uh, but that doesn't keep me from engaging uh, the public square and engaging people of other faith traditions and respecting and honor them, make relationships with them. Uh, I, I have a good friend who's a, a Hindu uh, who I work with in, uh, in interfaith work. Uh, I've made good friend friendships with people who are m- Muslim. Uh, that has defined me. Uh, in, in, in recent years. And I, I come from, I mean, I come out of an evangelical tradition. I, you know, I'm a graduate of Fuller Seminary. So that defines to some degree who I am. Uh, but I've begun to have for the last 15 years or so begun to develop and recognize the diversity and, and not see that as a threat, but as a value, but it's because of relationships, making relationships with people, um, and knowing that they're not a threat, that my Muslim friends are not going to are not a threat to me. My Jewish friends are not a threat to me. My Hindu friends are not a threat to my faith. My guest is Robert Cornwall. He is the author of Faith in the Public Square. Uh, he blogs at Ponderings on a Faith Journey, bobcornwall.com. You know, Bob, one of the things that probably um, would tend to get me in trouble in my ministry, and you, and you can see if that does it for you too, wasn't so much talking about Jesus or the Bible, but it was challenging the notion that America is a chosen country um, and and the, the civil religion that goes with that. And I, I want to, okay, you wrote, write about this, and I want you to comment on this if you think, oh, I, oh, I like to watch football, and, and as I'm watching football, I see commercials for the U.S. Navy, and, and the commercial line is the U.S. Navy, a global force for good. And that, to me, uh, is almost a religious statement, uh, not as more than just a military one. Can you unpack for us a little bit this, this idea of American exceptionalism and manifest destiny and civil religion? These are dangerous questions. Uh, I, like many preachers, I, I, I dread having to preach on Fourth of July mm-hmm. uh, because there's the expectation of a certain uh, of songs that need to be sung and thir- certain prayers to be said. Uh, I have uh, my congregation is uh, is pretty diverse politically and theologically, and so I have some good conservative folks and some good liberal folks, and and uh, we do have the flag in the in the church, though it's in the back and not in the front, which I'm thankful for. Um, but yeah, it does become difficult, and I, I'll give an example of where that difficulty came in, and uh, was 9/11. And I got myself in trouble. Uh, you know, it was a couple of years after that, that that I had to finally resign. But there was this gnawing uh, feeling among some of my parishioners that I hadn't properly honored uh, the, the, the date, the event of 9-11. And I couldn't figure out what they meant because I went back and looked at my sermons and I looked at the services and what I did. But what I realized ultimately was the the problem they had was we didn't sing patriotic songs hmm. and that I didn't condemn Muslims and I didn't uh, lift up America's greatness and exceptionalism and that we're a force for good 
out there. Um, uh, and so my, uh, my, my prayers for the, for healing of the nations, uh, and singing the bomb of Gilead apparently didn't, uh, solve the problem. Uh, and, uh, even though I had addressed the topic, um, multiple Sundays in a row, I was told I never did anything re regarding that. And so there is this sense that, that, uh, that you know, I, I talked earlier about allegiance, that um, it's very difficult, I think, for American Christians to separate out, and this is where faith in public square becomes dangerous, separate out their uh, their allegiance to nation to their allegiance to God. There, it's a sense mm -hmm. that they run together, which I think is why there's this fear that with all of these new people coming into our communities, you know, the Muslims and the and the Hindus and the Buddhists and all of these people, that this would um, it undermines that connection between church and state as as an identity, and not necessarily institutional church, but Christian identity uh, that goes back to Constantine. There's that sense of of a, a Constantinian connection that. Um, that still is present in the lives of many people. And I think drives a sense of America and God being on the same team. And that's and why God and, and America can't do anything wrong because we're on God's team. We're, we're God's people. We're the chosen people. Um, and we can't do anything wrong. And I think that your work in bringing these issues to the public square is what is so important uh, in this time, to be able to talk about it with uh, reason voices, to, to bring up those questions themselves. Uh, we just have just about a minute left, Bob. Your book is Faith in the Public Square, a collection of essays about uh, issues of religion and politics. I can imagine that this book would be useful perhaps at a book study group or a Sunday school class in a church or, or some other place. How, how else do you think it might be useful, and, and what would you like to uh, uh, people to see? Well, I think uh, you, you, you touched on a couple of ways. They could be utilized very easily for uh, uh, conversation starters. They also, uh, they're kind of one of the things you could read once a week. There's a little few more than 50 of them. And you can kind of pick and choose where you want to go. Uh, use the table of contents as a way of, of, of looking at the world and saying, okay, I need to address a certain topic. And you kind of pay, uh, page through that and you find that particular essay that really speaks to you at that moment and maybe then have a conversation about that topic with others. So I, I think it can be used in a variety of ways uh, to, to facilitate conversation. My guest on Religion for Life has been Robert Cornwell, author of a fine book, an important book, a thoughtful book about bringing uh, issues of religion and society and culture and politics and being able to talk about them openly. I highly recommend Faith in the Public Square. Uh, Robert, thank you so much for taking this time to be with me and for doing this work. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate your inviting me to have this conversation and 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 bringing the religion into the public square in your own way, and I appreciate that. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Shuck, and I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org.
You can find more information about upcoming shows, as well as links to podcasts, my blog, and other information at religionforlife.com, religionforlife.com. Follow Religion for Life on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM on the campus of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM on the campus of Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia. Be well.